0: We are recording now. All right. Yes. So the first time we did this, Kevin and I got together for our first episode. We actually got together. Kevin and Bethany came to the house. We had a good dinner and hung out and visited and got to enjoy each other's company. He actually helped me and a buddy move a mattress as well. I had a friend that I had promised I would help him move, and Kevin was gracious enough to help direct us from the side as we did all the heavy lifting.
1: I'm really good at that.
0: Yeah, you're an excellent supervisor. I it think was it just did a wonderful. great
1: job at telling y'all where to put the mattress and the furniture.
0: Oh, yes, yes. It turned out great. But we were in person and we we recorded our first episode in the little home gym that I set up in a little building in my backyard. But for this episode, Kevin and I are actually not in the same room. We are actually um, several, what, about 80-ish miles away. Kevin's in his home. I'm at my office. And we're recording... At a distance and we can't see each other. So if our interaction sounds stilted, that's why if we start Hopefully interrupting not. each other. <laughs> yeah. If we just start interrupting each other, we can't see those visual cues. So we're going to give this a run and see how it goes. And the next time we do it, we may do it over Zoom. We may do it over Skype or who knows? I may drive up there and come to your house and we may do it up there. I don't know. I may come back and get another free meal. That was good. Best pot roast Dude. I've ever had. Let me tell you something that woman of mine knows how to cook. Whenever we first got married, I gained 25 pounds our first year of marriage. And it let me tell you, it was a wonderful 25 pounds. She can cook. She's only made one bad meal in all the years we've ever been married. She made Mongolian beef one night. And it drives me insane when my kids don't eat, but we had we had put the food on the table and we all sat down, we said our prayer, we started eating. And the kids took a bite and they're like oh i don't like it and i was like well you're gonna eat it anyway your mom worked hard on this you got to eat and they're, oh but dad i don't like it and i was like no you're gonna eat and that's usually how it goes oh, oh i don't like it and then they start eating it and then they're fine well kim took a bite of it and she said oh this really isn't that good
1: well there you go You permission
0: i looked at her i took a bite and i said Okay, who wants pizza? Let's do pizza instead. It's the only bad meal that woman's ever made.
1: As long as she agreed that it wasn't a good meal, you're good.
0: Yeah. I don't have any, I don't have to worry about the ire of an angry woman at that point. I'll have to stay outside on the corner of the rooftop of my house. Bethany is an awesome cook too, man. She oh man, she can cook. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm always
1: bouncing up and down with my weight because I'll do a really good job and then all of a sudden I'll just not
0: for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel you, man. I've been, I've been trying to cut. I did a bulk over the winter and I've been trying to cut. And that cut has been really, really hard. It's been really hard because brother, I'm like you. I like to eat. I like to eat food. Spirit I like to put is it away. willing,
1: but the flesh is weak.
0: It is weak and spongy at this point. So I've got to do some work <laughs> to get rid of that sponginess. But our first episode went off really well. We've got a lot of really good feedback off of it. And it was just an introduction and this episode is going to be a little bit more in keeping with the general theme that we're going to follow. And what that is, is each episode, we're going to deal with a different concept and a different idea and discuss how our paradigms have shifted, or depending on the subject or the topic, how our paradigm maybe hasn't shifted, how mine maybe has shifted and yours hasn't, or your or mine has and yours hasn't, or, or whatever the case may be. And we're going to go into different things as we attempt to explore our faith and navigate, as, as you've been putting it on Facebook, towards a more Christocentric type of faith.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited about today's topic, which we're going to be addressing the question, will only few people be in heaven? And I also call this small heaven theology. It's the idea that only a handful of people are going to be saved. And man, I love talking about this because I feel like we have some really good news in this episode to share with people, but there's going to be a lot of undressing of some old arguments that we're going to be doing because, man, it's so important to establish why people, including ourselves, have come to the conclusions that we've come to, and then also our thought process as to why we changed. And so I I want to just begin with this idea, Lee, of why do you think that you believed for so many years that there's only going to be few people in heaven.
0: Well, because that's what the Bible teaches. Okay, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's We've it. had a great Good episode. News. Four minutes. <laughs> no, um, it, it, that would be the short answer, though. I mean, if if I'm going to get rid of the sarcasm for a moment, that would be the answer. The reason why I believe that is because, well, that's what the Bible teaches. If we look at passages like Matthew 7 and, what is it, 13? Yeah, yeah, I have
1: it right here. And, this, and I don't know how many times that I... Preach sermons talking about how there were only going to be a few people in heaven. In fact, one of my favorite sermons at the time was called, Are You One of the Few? And yeah. it was based upon Matthew 7 13 and 14. And the text reads, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But for the gate uh, is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So when you look at this passage, it seems almost undeniably clear that Jesus is teaching an absolute that there will be few people who are going to be saved. And I would even in some of my old sermons I would really emphasize and hit this point very hard by alluding to other passages such as 1 Peter 3:20 when Peter was talking about how there were only a few people saved in the days of Noah which were only 8 and in Revelation chapter 3 verse 4 how there were only a few among them who were actually faithful. So I would go to these different passages. Another one is Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I would talk about how there's only going to be a few people who are going to be saved. You you have to make sure that you're keeping perfectly the commands of God. Of course, I never would say perfectly, but that definitely was the implication without even, oh, yeah. even, oh, even realizing yeah. that. And so, it, yeah, it's this idea that, When you come to these texts, it really does seem undeniably clear that the Bible does teach that there are only a few people that will be in heaven. And when this becomes your framework, this is going to greatly dictate the way you view yourself and the way you view other Christians and even your own congregation for that matter
0: well it's also going to color the way that you view god and a lot of people don't think about it from that angle because if we're looking at at god through the lens of our theology as it relates to this idea of a small heaven then we're looking at a god who sent his son the best of heaven the only begotten of god to this low land of sin and suffering through the incarnation to to become one of us to be fully human yet still retain his full divinity to walk upon the earth, to suffer as we suffer, to be tempted as we are tempted, and to ultimately die the most humiliating death that the human imagination could ever could ever conceive in order to save all of those who were lost. But it's only going to be for these few people. We're going to set the standard so high and make it so difficult that if you take the parable of the sower, at best, you've got 25% of the people you know are, are going to make it. And at that stage, you know, whenever you think about it in those terms, it's like, whoa, hold on. You know, what kind of lens am I looking at God through? What kind of God is it that I serve? And that, that to me, is one of the biggest questions that, that I have come away with in reimagining and deconstructing and reconstructing my faith and how I look at faith and how I look at my faith in God and how I approach the scriptures is what kind of God am I serving? am i yeah. serving a vindictive god am i serving a god that that is keeping that way narrow on purpose to allow only a few in
1: well and when you have that understanding of this is what the bible teaches then it's very easy to go to someone who doesn't have that much bible knowledge and show them a handful of passages Because you're you're very sincere. I'm very sincere. Most people who teach this, if not all, are very sincere. And so when they have these Bible verses in their arsenal and they go and they talk to people and they can quote these passages or they can point people to them and then they read them, then they believe it. And then, of course, they start teaching other people. And I made a Facebook post earlier today where I talk about the statement, you are not disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with God.
0: Oh, and, well, of course, man, I can disagree with uh, anything I say. You're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with God. That's just, oh, that just goes without saying. Yes. And the problem with that is, number one,
1: I use that phrase so many different times. So I, I get it. I understand it. But it's a it's a very authoritative statement because what you're doing is you're able to hide behind the authority of God. And in my sense or, or from my perspective, I was very sincere when I was using that statement. I mean I really thought this is this was this is the Bible this is what the Bible says and therefore I'm just teaching what the Bible says but as I as I talked about on my Facebook post man there's all sorts of faulty application that comes from that mindset when we're not humble enough to admit, that our interpretation or understanding of scripture should never be equated with scripture itself. We should always understand this is my understanding to the best of my ability as I am a very fallible human trying to understand an infallible God.
0: And that to me is the biggest takeaway that I hope everybody gets to, because it's something that took me a very, very long time to wrap my head around or or really to accept, is that is the idea that God himself is sovereign and he is perfect in all of his ways. His book that we have is perfect. It is God breathed, but I am not. And my perspective on that in my finitude I'm not going to be able to completely unwrap and completely parse everything there is to know in Scripture. So for me to predicate my salvation on my level of knowledge is a fool's errand to begin with because it's impossible for me to attain that level of knowledge. But even so, if I can continue to grow in knowledge and I can continue to read and study, and we're not saying that knowledge needs to be thrown out. You can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Knowledge is important, but a lot of times knowledge becomes an idol. It becomes, we begin, as you have said before, we begin to pursue knowledge under the guise of pursuing God. We're really not pursuing God. We're just wanting to build up our own knowledge. And in doing so, we gain this air of superiority about us. Well, I know more about scriptures than what these people do. And if they only knew what I knew, or if they only understood it the right way, well, they'd be right over here with me. Mm -hmm. And then we look around amongst some of our assemblies and we see that we have, you know, we, we see the church down the street that has, you know, three or 400 people. Or five hundred people on any given Sunday, and then we look at our assemblies, and you know maybe we have hundred, or maybe we have eighty, or maybe we have forty, or whatever else, or maybe we have in some of the places where I've been, and I know that you've probably taught at too. We have you know eight to twelve, and we begin to rationalize that in our mind because that can be discouraging in a way. But we begin to rationalize those numbers in our mind by thinking, well, you know, there's only going to be a few saved. And so I guess because our group is so small, well, we're really just holding the line then.
1: Yeah, and that's what I was going to want to talk about next with you is that this really affects our overall view of ourselves and other churches because you're able to rationalize and justify why there is nobody perhaps at the church you're at (laughs) or why there is nobody who sees things the way you see them instead of instead of allowing that to question or allowing that to bring you to questioning yourself or your own positions, you just find yourself being even really more entrenched and indoctrinated with the idea that you're one of the truly few who have figured it out. Because everyone else, they're just rebelling against God. They really don't care. And by the way, the Bible says this, the Bible says there's only going to be few. So if nobody follows me, Because I'm following the Bible, so if nobody follows me, then they're not really following Christ. But you know what? Jesus said this would happen anyway. And so we begin to see Scripture as these self-fulfilling prophecies. Even if we're not properly applying them, we can't see through that. Because we have come to the Scripture with this bias, and by the way, we all do. We all come to Scriptures with biases, as we talked about in our last episode. But when we come to a Scripture with this type of bias, we're not even allowing ourselves to consider an alternative. And so when we look at churches, when we look at other denominations who are flourishing— we make fun of them. We mock them. We condemn them and say, well, you know what? They're not really saved. They're not part of the few. The Bible says only few people are going to heaven. And in fact, I heard one man say, if your church is growing, it could be a sign that you're not teaching the truth because
0: Jesus said only few are going to be saved. Oh, wow. Well, and what you said about, you know, we begin to to make fun of them and mock them. I mean, that's true. I can't. I can't count the number of conversations I've had where it's like you have this church over here, and it's like, well, of course they have a bunch of people there. They're having a weenie roast after services, or they've got a fog machine and laser lights and a rock band or whatever else. And we begin to make assumptions. I mean, I don't know if they well, have, they have multiple cups, machine. right? They have multiple. Cups. they have multiple cups? <laughs> well, yeah, they got multiple cups or this or that or whatever else. You know, so we begin I, to, I had to get that one in, man. Oh, of course. To. It, it, it's, it's good that I love you anyway, right? <laughs> but but in any case, we begin to mock them. We begin to disparage them. And I think a lot of times we do that, at least for me, because in part we're jealous. I know that that's why I would do that sometimes Is is there would be a little sliver of jealousy there because you have this group over here that's growing. Why are they growing when we are not? We have the truth. And yet, here they are, you know, growing by leaps and bounds, especially whenever we consider, you know, some of the things that Jesus said about the way being narrow and difficult and there being few that find it. And whenever we consider what it means to take up your cross and follow after Jesus, that means that this life is going to be burdensome. And if, you know, you're riding on a gravy train with biscuit wheels, I mean, are you really taking up your cross and following Jesus? Are you really pursuing Him if life is easy and growth is coming easy to your group? That's the questions that run in the mind of those who believe that heaven will be small, and those numbers are few in an uh, absolute sense.
1: Yeah, and those are the same questions that I asked myself and really believed as well during that time is, hey, the Bible says there's only going to be few. So even though we may not be growing as much as the church down the street, well, Jesus said this would be the case, and so they're attracting people through other means than just the truth, even though we were attracting people through other means too. You know, it's, it's kind of ironic when, when you start breaking these things down, we want to say that one way of attracting people is a different way, but you have Jesus feeding the 5,000 and of course other means and methods of getting people's attention. But, we'll say that for a different podcast for a different time but the point is is that when you look at the passages that we just alluded to just a moment ago and if you're listening to this and you want to jot those down it was Matthew 7 13 and 14 that's really the 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 clobber passage on this idea of there's only going to be few people that are going to heaven uh, another passage is Luke 13 23 through 24 and then i alluded to 1 Peter 3 20 and Revelation 3 4 and of course Daniel 3 with Shadrach Meshach and Abednego but to go along with that idea Lee, as you were just saying, I pointed to other passages as well, just like you're talking about, that almost solidify this idea even further. And just some of these passages I'll go ahead and read. Luke 14, 26 through 28. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. When you look at that in Luke, that's Luke 14, 26 through 28. If you just quote that just like I did and read that just like I did with the idea that there's only going to be a few people in heaven, Man, that really solidifies it, right? I mean, that almost seems crystal clear. People right now listening saying, Lee and Kevin, how in the world are you going to explain these clear, undeniable passages away? And so that's one passage. Another one that I used to use a lot was Matthew 16, 24 through 26. This is the sermon I would always preach if I wanted people to come forward just to make sure they were going to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and of course I say that in jest, but I mean, I really believe that's what I needed to be teaching. But this this text, man, I tell you what, it can get a lot of people question their salvation. It says that uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits or loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And so you're looking at that, and you're thinking, man, like what? What am I doing right now that's separating me from Christ? What do I need to give up? I need to take up my cross and follow Jesus. And so, and you have other passages too. We're not we're not going to allude to every single one. Uh, another one that I would oftentimes allude to or talk about is Matthew chapter 10 verses 34 through 39, where Jesus said, "I didn't." come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword to divide family against family, and there's going to be no peace, and it's going to be horrible, and and here I've come, and there's going to be division. So when you take all of that, and if you only look at those passages, is it really any wonder that if you have those passages, and that's all you've been taught, and you're not looking at context, or you're not looking at other passages or principles, that you would come to such a conclusion?
0: Well, if you're going to separate and divorce the passages from its context, that's the only conclusion you can come to. But to me, this is really interesting because it's very similar to what we talked about in episode one, where I talked about you know the first domino that fell for me and beginning to revisit and reevaluate and reorient myself to the nature of the scriptures and how I was approaching those scriptures. And you know, you, it's almost like I'm going to come to the text with this idea of there are only going to be a few in heaven. Because for a lot of people, before they obey the gospel in our groups, they're going to hear these passages presented in the way that you have just presented them and in the yeah. way that you used to present them and in the way that I used to present them. They're going to hear I wanna, that I message interrupt you real quickly. And I, I want to <laughs> I just want to say this. This is
1: why we believe that talking about this is so important because we understand where so many people are coming from.
0: Yes. Yes. And
1: we were there ourselves and it's not that we're looking down on others who are still there and going, ha ha, we figured out you have it. It's we're, we're now wanting to bring to people's attention alternative understandings that we now believe to be the truth so that they can have an opportunity to understand it in a different way that we built, of course from our perspective makes a lot more sense and is in accordance with what the Bible teaches, but to help free people, man, I am 10 times happier, more joyful. And I, my relationship with Christ is so much better. I, I've, you know, I talk about in my book, how I had a porn addiction and, and a lot of, in a lot of ways, my legalism kept me there. And finally when I understood grace and when I understood love and when I understood true relationship with Jesus, man, so many things started changing. And so we're not saying these same things because we just want to look down on other people and prove them wrong. Man, we want to we want others truly to find the, the joy, the freedom that Jesus has
0: set us free for, as we see in Galatians five one. It's exactly like the first episode, whenever we said we're not here to grind an ax against anybody you know our goal isn't to call people out on the carpet and say well this is what we thought before and anyone that thinks this is wrong where that's not the purpose here because whenever you look at heaven as a place that will be very small i mean what what is the the purpose of following jesus we follow jesus because we love him but we also look forward with hope to that to the expectation of the place that he has gone to prepare for us you know, we realize that these bodies that we inhabit are biological machines that our souls inhabit. And whenever these bodies die, we believe that our souls will continue to live on. And the question, and we'll, we'll get into eschatology and all that other stuff. And then, you know, the end of the soul or the end of life and, you know, the afterlife and the hereafter and all that in episodes to come. But we ultimately believe that there is a heaven and that those who love Christ and those who submit themselves to him will find themselves in that heavenly rest. So what's it going to be like if we get up there and you've got like 40 people kicking around? I mean, yeah. that's that's not something that that you really have to look forward to. You know, whenever we get up there and we make it, and I believe we can be confident in our salvation and we can know that we are saved. I mean, John talks about that in his epistles. But there are a lot of people who, because heaven is so small in their mind and because this theology of only a few being saved, they wonder if they're the few. They wonder if they've been able to check enough of the boxes or if they're living a holy enough life to warrant their entry into the kingdom. And whenever the time comes for them to close their eyes and go to sleep for their bodies to die. They're wondering if they're going to wake up in glory or if they're going to wake up in torment. And that is a question that plagues them. It's something that will chip away at them and that fear will build and build and build in their own minds until it becomes untenable. They either then have to ignore it or that fear can begin to cause psychosis. It can begin to cause all manner of issues that they have to work through if they even can work through it.
1: Yeah. And that's the the problem of believing a small heaven theology is that you begin to wonder if you're going to make it. You begin to wonder if you are one of the few. And I, I remember preaching that sermon and I preached it a lot when I would go to different churches and hold revivals and gospel meetings. And there would be some nights after I got done preaching it that I would just lay in my bed thinking, man, Am I going to make it? Like, am I one of the few? Here I am asking everybody, are you one of the few? And it was a cute title and it rhymed. But I'm sitting here thinking, man, am I one of the few? Like, am I going to make it? Because the way I was teaching it with those passages I just quoted, and by the way, those were the passages that I would always use. That would basically be my sermon, is I would talk about how Jesus emphasized how hard it was to follow Him, and difficult is the way, and that the burdens that we are going to have to face, and the commands that Jesus lays upon us, and the high standard of kingdom living, man, there's only going to be few, and and half of you probably are going to be going to hell, so you better repent tonight. And and it's, <laughs> man, I, I would literally, at the end of that, think to myself, huh, am I living up to what I believe I should be living up to? Am I? truly taking up my cross and, and following Jesus. And so it it can be a very scary thing. And I have talked to so many preachers, Lee, I cannot tell you, I'm talking about dozens of guys who are still in what I would consider very legalistic churches who are terrified. They are scared to death. And uh, we, I've been able to have some very, what I believe to be profitable conversations with them in trying to to help them through this because i'm talking about some great good-hearted sincere men who are out there truly doing what they think they need to be doing and even people who oppose me today man i love them because i understand they were right where i was years ago trying to do what they think they need to do and so i understand it i understand it and that's why i i, I no longer want to to be silent about these things i want to have these conversations so people can listen to them right now. And it may take them months. It may take them years before they finally get to uh, certain points where they need to be in order to make the moves they need to make. But it can be scary. And man, there's good news. And there is no good news in this. What what we're talking about right now, heaven's small and the, the standard Jesus lays is so difficult that only few will find it. Come forward as we stand and sing. I mean, what good yeah. news is that? Where is the yeah. good news in that?
0: Yeah, well, the the good news is it's good for you if you're one of the few. But if you're not one of the few, that's not good news in the slightest. And I think one of the reasons why this is one of those ideas that continues to perpetuate is because it's one of those doctrines that we inherit whenever we're whenever we're saved. Whenever we obey the gospel and we begin to serve Jesus, this is the way in which heaven is presented by so many people. And like you said, though, it's not good news. And it's important that we do have this conversation so that we can begin to look at this from other angles. Because this idea of, of being there just being a few saved contextually doesn't fit the framework that we build these passages into it's a very shaky scaffolding whenever you begin to understand the context behind it because you also look at what Jesus said about following him that his burdens are easy and light he you know he alludes to the idea of yes it's a difficult way and we're going to get into that as we begin to unpack this but his burdens are easy and they're light. So immediately, if we look at this idea of following Jesus is hard and it's going to bring conflict, it's going to bring a sword, it's going to bring all of this. And if you don't have conflict in your life with the people you love, you're just not serving God well enough. Well, you immediately have a theological tension with what Jesus says about, come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So, what do we do with that tension? How do we go through that? Because I think and that's when we begin to find the context.
1: Yeah, and that is something that really started changing my understanding of really just Jesus in general, because I had had a certain focus of, of Jesus and his teachings. And it's just like anything in life. If you only look at someone's, for example, let's say their their negative traits, okay? I'm not saying that I was looking at Jesus' negative traits. That's not what I'm saying. But let's just say from a, a human perspective, all I do is I concentrate on someone's negative traits. Then I'm not taking anything else into consideration. And if all I do is focus on their negative traits, then that person is going to be completely different in my mind than they are in reality. Because while they may have negative traits, there's other traits, right? So when you begin to concentrate on just one area of someone's teaching or someone's behavior, then you can begin to reinvent that person into something that they really aren't. Now, with Jesus, I didn't believe these were negative traits. Traits or characteristics. I believe that these were, this is just the truth. This is just who Jesus was. Jesus was this stern disciplinarian. He was the man who made it difficult for people to follow him. It was very hard. He came and just laid forth this truly impossible standard to follow, except if you've convinced yourself you're one of the few who have been able to figure out how to do it. And so, this passage you allude to here in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, man, that passage is beautiful because. The two words that really strike me as interesting is when he says, easy and light. So when you take that into consideration that my yoke is easy, Jesus said, and my burden is light, then we have to ask ourselves, well, wait a minute, what does that mean And how do we harmonize that with other passages where Jesus seems to be teaching conflicting information? And we also, by the way, have John in 1 John 5, 3, who says the same thing. He says that that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And this is the way that I actually used to understand these passages. I, I don't even think I've had this conversation with you before, but this is how I used to translate those passages back when I was a true legalist. Is I would say, well, what Jesus means is, if you're willing to follow him, then it seems easy in comparison with, 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 with the rest of the trials of this world, knowing that we have heaven. In other words, yeah, it may not actually be easy. It may be very hard, but it, it's going to basically seem easy because we're going to have heaven as our eternal home. <laughs> and so which is by the way a qu- complete misunderstanding of what what jesus was saying but that is yeah. how i had to understand it at the time because i couldn't come to the conclusion that Jeep G- following jesus and his burdens wa- was easy and light now i want to say this because i think this is very important here's what i came to realize lee the context of jesus speaking of difficulty speaking of division Speaking of how hard it is and the and the burdens and, and how difficult all of those passages without exception, without exception I, I encourage you please go and study these in context. he is speaking of the difficulty not that he places on his followers, but the difficulty that non-believers and enemies of Christ will place on believers if they decide to follow him. And I want to say that one more time because this is so important to get. Jesus is not saying that what he is placing upon us is difficult because he clearly says, what I am placing upon you is easy and light. However, when you choose to follow me, there are going to be people who are going to put burdens on you. There are going to be people who are going to attack you. There are going to be people who come after you. And specifically in these contexts, and we're going to get get into that in a minute, In the Jewish context, there will be people who come after you and persecute you. And so anytime Jesus is speaking of this difficulty, he's not saying, boy, I've brought a law and it is so hard to follow that only a few people are going to be able to. And the ones that do make it to heaven are going to get there by the skin of their teeth. That's not what Jesus is teaching at all. Jesus is saying, come to me. It's easy. It's light. And we don't like that. We want the hard doctrine, man. We want it hard. We, we, we want to know, okay, Jesus, let's make this as difficult as possible so we can have this superiority. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's easy. It's light. What, who was making it difficult for people to follow Jesus were the ones who were coming up with all these rules for people to tr- to follow in order to go to heaven.
0: And what's so interesting to me is the irony that's in that is, you know, Jesus says, come to me. My burden is easy. My yoke is easy, my burden's light. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And whenever you talk about the human context and the human element of this, that whenever we follow Jesus, there are going to be those that oppose us, and that is where the hardship comes in. What's so ironic to me is, is whenever you began to change and you began to preach more grace centered uh, doctrine and you began to promote this idea of grace over legalism, you became persecuted by your own brethren, which Mm -hmm. is hilarious in a tragic way. Because a lot of times whenever we do begin to change and we do begin to promote this more Christ-centered approach to to serving him and this Christ-centered approach to the scriptures and taking the context of a whole overall those that are the most legalistic and those who are still beholden to a lot of those legalistic thought patterns and hermeneutical patterns are going to be the ones that persecute us. So what Jesus says is absolutely true. There are going to be those of our own household and those of the household of faith, are brothers and our sisters in Christ, who will come up against us. And yeah, it's, frankly, it's, it's... Oh, oh, sorry, ahead. man. Yeah, frankly, that's something that I'm really not looking forward to (laughs) in all of this is, you know, the fallout that's that's likely going to come as a result of this. But even so, if it helps to assuage the fears of those who have no place to fear, it's going to be worth it.
1: Well, I remember a teacher who when I first started changing, I reached out to him and he told me that, Kevin, he said, you are on a journey that is going to give you so much peace because you're getting to know Jesus day by day in a way that you never have. And he said, you're gonna find so much joy. You're gonna find so much freedom. You're, going to, you're, you're no longer going to have to explain away certain Bible passages. Things are going to make sense. Jesus is going to make sense. You, you don't, you're, no, you're no longer going to be afraid to, to go to the Bible to find something new because you, you now realize that your salvation is not dependent upon you having every single correct answer, so you can continue to learn. He said, Kevin, this is going to be great. It's going to be so freeing. He said, however, get ready. Because when you begin to change and open up about your change, and this has been six years ago, and he said, "When you do this, it's going to be very difficult." And I look back and I think that's exactly what Jesus was saying. Just like this man was telling me, "I've got such a good you're, you're on you're on the right path." And, and Jesus is is is, a, is such a wonderful man, such a wonderful person, such a wonderful God to follow. It's so easy. It's so light. It's so freeing. However, when you choose to do this, understand you're going to get a lot of opposition. And for the, for the Jews especially, you know, I think about how there were so many people who were trying to come to Jesus because they wanted that, that burden lifted. They wanted Jesus to take that burden. And yet it was the very people of the law who were making it difficult for them to come. I think of the story of Simon, the uh, Simon, the Pharisee and what the Bible describes as just the sinful woman in Luke chapter seven, verses 36 through 49. And the, the Simon, the Pharisee was like, can you believe that, that, that Jesus is associating with this woman? Can you believe he's talking to her? Can you believe that, that he's letting her do this to him? And, and, and yet it was him who was placing Simon, the Pharisee was placing the burden on this woman, not Jesus, but because she chose to follow Jesus, she was persecuted. And so when we begin to look at these things in context, all of a sudden we we it makes sense. We have to ask ourselves the question, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Yeah. It was the Jews. The very ones who were supposed to receive Jesus were the ones who killed him. And so Jesus is not the one who is binding heavy burdens upon us. He has not provided a standard that is so difficult nobody can keep. Now, granted, I do want to make this clear. Jesus has presented a kingdom living standard, but Jesus also has provided grace and mercy as we fail and fall short of that kingdom living standard, which we all do. If you've ever had a hateful thought or a lustful thought, then you're guilty of breaking the law and you need Jesus. And that was his whole point in the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll get to that probably in another episode in the future. But the point is that I just want to really hammer here is that Jesus never taught that what he is requiring of us, and I don't even like the word requiring, but you understand what I'm saying, that what yeah, he's placing baby. on us is difficult. Jesus said, what I'm placing on you is easy. What I'm placing on you is light. But if you choose to receive the light and easy burden that I'm giving you, know it will be difficult, not because of me, but because of everybody else and what they're going to do to you when you choose to follow me.
0: Well, and the way that ties into this idea of a small heaven is heaven is going to be a small place. There's not going to be very many people there because the way is narrow and the way is difficult. It's just it's going to be hard to get there. And the reason why it's going to be hard to get there is because Jesus's message is a divisive message. It's going to be hard to follow. And he came to set this whole new standard. So that entire framework is predicated on the idea that Jesus and what he did and the mission that he had was to come and do away with the old law of Moses and bring about a newer, harder law to follow. And <laughs> all of that is all of that is a house of cards that just doesn't stand up to biblical scrutiny, especially whenever you consider what Jesus said about his burden being e- his yoke being easy and his burden being light. So whenever we begin to look at that and we begin to unpack that, it changes how we look at heaven And the populace of heaven or the numbers that will be in heaven. Yeah, in fact,
1: I'm going to make a statement right now, and we're going to get into this for the remainder of the time. There are going to be an innumerable amount of people in heaven. Not only is heaven not small, heaven is going to be so large, so big, that you're not even going to be able to count the amount of people who are going to be in heaven. Now, how did I arrive at that conclusion? Well, one day I just decided that's what I want to believe because it felt good and so I believed it. All right. Just hey, because-
0: episode over. There you go. Thank you guys for listening. No, that's that's a joke.
1: No, but by the way, that is what I would have accused someone who would ever say, who would have ever said something like that in the past. I would have, of course, accused them like that and say, well, you don't actually have the Bible to prove that. But he, here is now what I want to shift into and get into with you, Lee. And that is the promise made to Abraham. And... Most Christians, I dare say, are familiar with the promise that is made to Abraham and, and really continuously confirmed to Abraham. Uh, really, it starts with Genesis chapter 12, and it just continues on over and over in Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. And, and then we, we see it later continuously, this idea of the seed promise confirmed in Genesis 28. But the idea is that there was a promise made to Abraham And that this promise includes how many people are ultimately going to be saved. And we see that the fulfillment of this promise was in Jesus Christ. Now, some people are going to argue with me on this and say, well, Kevin, this promise was only to physical Israel. And there's no doubt that physical Israel as a nation grew and it was massive and it was huge. We see that in Romans chapter nine, verse 27, but... The Bible teaches us that this promise had its ultimate fulfillment, not in physical Israel, but in what has now been come to known as the kingdom or spiritual Israel, which is, consists of all believers everywhere, both Jew and Gentile. And well, so... And oh,
0: oh, go oh, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say, so if we understand, and I'm going to read a few passages here about this promise, if we can understand this promise is in relation to how many people are going to be saved, then we understand that this, this promise becomes the basis of understanding how big or small heaven's going to be. And so uh, do you have something to say before I read these two passages?
0: Oh, yeah. It, just as it relates to the context being physical Israel, it, we a lot of times I think we fall into the habit and into the pattern of looking at things in terms of false dichotomies. We create these false dichotomies. And we say, oh, well, this only has to do with with physical Israel. Oh, this only has to do with this. This only has to do with that. And whenever you look at how the New Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit interpreted the Old Testament scriptures, a lot of times they took things out of its Old Testament context to make it make sense in light of Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Israel's story. And the promise was originally given to Abraham. We see that promise fulfilled physically in physical Israel, but it doesn't stop there. And that's what you're about to get into. You're going to go into those passages that el- that elucidate the reasoning that those New Testament authors use to determine that Jesus is the fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant, that promise that was once made to the patriarch in the long ago.
1: Yeah, and this, this goes with the idea of the Christocentric Ideology and theology that everything ends and begins with Jesus. Uh, it, it does. It begins and ends. I mean, he is the Alpha. He is the Omega. It starts with him and ends with him, including this promise that was made. Now, Abraham didn't realize this was about Jesus. I mean, I mean, this would this would not happen until a long time after Abraham. But notice well, in here okay.
0: Abraham well uh, Abraham, it wouldn't it wouldn't make any sense to Abraham. Okay, so Abraham, this is the promise I'm making to you, and there's gonna be a Jewish carpenter who's gonna be God incarnate in another oh, 4,000, 4,500 years from now, who's gonna stand up <laughs> and this is gonna be the guy that this promise is really all about. It wouldn't make any sense to him. It wouldn't have any impact for him.
1: Yeah, and so in Acts three, you have Peter talking about Jesus and Really, that whole chapter I would encourage you to read, but because we don't have time, I'm just going to read Acts 3, 24 and 25. And so he's been building up to what this promise is all about. And so he says, All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So here... Here, Peter is preaching this sermon about Jesus Christ. He says, this has been foretold by the prophets. This was a promise given to Abraham. And really, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when the first sin entered the world. This plan has been in the mind of God even before time began, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. And so, this is now being fulfilled among you in Jesus Christ. But it's not just to the Jews. This promise of being saved is no longer just to the Jews. In Galatians 3.29, he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise which was made to him. And then you go to Romans chapter 9, verse 8, and Paul says, this means that it is not just the children of the flesh who are the children of God. In other words, just because someone was born a physical Israelite no longer guarantees them a relationship with God, nor does it exclude other nations. And so he goes on to say, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And this is powerful, man. I mean, this is so oh, powerful yeah. because most Christians are very familiar with the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, going to go into all nations. Most Christians are familiar with Romans 1:16, that the gospel is to be preached to the Jew first, and also to the Greek and the Gentile. We see from Cornelius the gospel is presented to the Gentiles. So we understand this, but what we oftentimes fail to realize is that all of this was a promise that goes all the way back. And when when Paul is talking about this promise, and when Peter's talking about this promise about Abraham, this is exactly what he's talking about. He is straight up quoting this. Probably in your Bibles, it's even italicized to show that it's talking about this going all the way back as a cross-reference. So why is that it's so important, Lee, to understand that this promise is about ultimately how many people would be saved?
0: Well, to me, it seems like it's important because the gospel was first delivered to the jewish nation and as the psalmist writes and as paul alludes to the stone that the builders rejected he jesus was ultimately rejected by the people that he came to you know as john said you know he came into his own and his own received him not the idea is is that the people that jesus came to israel physical israel ultimately rejected him and that Leads to the gospel being offered up unto the Gentiles, and in yeah. those prophets from the long ago, we see that that was originally part of God's plan to reach those who were afar off, as Peter calls them in Acts chapter two. And well, and, it's well, and I was
1: just going to say that when you take when you talk about the numbers, and, and this is by the way something that I had never even considered until I started just doing some reading, and a couple of my buddies brought this to my attention. They said, Kevin, why do you think only a few people are going to be in heaven? And, of course, I quoted Matthew 7, 13, and 14. And they said, well, have you ever considered that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and that Jesus is is here to save people, not ultimately destroy them? He's, He's here to save. And I said, well, yeah, I know that. And I believe that the promise made to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They said, well, do you know how many people is stated that's going to be saved? through Jesus Christ, and of course, in typical Kevin fashion, I said, well, of course I do. Matthew seven thirteen 13, and 14, only few. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I wasn't, I wasn't following their line of reasoning at first, and they said, no, no, Kevin, yeah. think about what the promise said. And this is what it says. It says that there are going to be so many people saved through Jesus Christ, that it's going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky, Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, more numerous than the sand that's on the seashore, Genesis 22, 17, and more numerous than the dust that is on the earth, Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. Lee, when I heard this, my mind was absolutely blown.
0: I mean, I cannot believe it. Well, it's a mind-blowing proposition, especially when you've been conditioned, and especially when you've promoted the idea that heaven's going to be a small place. and. Whenever I see that in Genesis 15, 5, and it's funny because, you know, talking about Abraham, I gave a lesson a while back on how Abraham and God made the covenant and they cut the animals in two, and then God walked between them on his own. And this idea of the stars in the sky, how those of his descent And those who Jesus would save ultimately would be greater than the number of stars in the sky. It makes me think of the Hubble Deep Field Telescope. Have you you seen any of the pictures that the Hubble Deep Field has shot?
1: Uh, I actually have not.
0: Oh, dude, it's nuts. You need to get on and you need to just Google search and image search of the Hubble Deep Field and maybe the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. And. I'll encourage our listeners to get on and look for that as well. And I'll tell you what you're looking at. Whenever you look at that, you're going to see a black picture with what appears to be a bunch of stars. And what they did is is they took the Hubble Space Telescope and they set it up. The Hubble Space Telescope is a telescope that orbits the Earth on the dark side of the Earth. And they pointed it. At the darkest section of space, what telescopes do is, is they collect light from far-off places and make what casts that light more visible to the naked eye. And they pointed that telescope at the darkest spot in space. And is before they left on holiday. Between Christmas and, and New Year's, they left it pointed at that one spot in space for seven days. And when they came back and looked at that, coming from the darkest spot in space that they could observe – they saw a near uncountable number of what they thought initially were stars. But as they began to process the images, what they found is is that those weren't stars, they were galaxies. Now, our galaxy, the Milky Way, has somewhere between 270 and 400 million stars in it. These were literally thousands of galaxies that they saw with somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 to 500 million stars per galaxy. So, and of course, ancient cosmologists, they didn't have the Hubble deep field to look at. They didn't have NASA. But whenever you see God making a promise that those who are saved are more innumerable than the stars in the sky, and you consider that in terms of the Hubble deep field, it's truly awe inspiring.
1: Well, and you, you look at each, each one of few. those. You, yeah, you look at each one of those categories. Because, like you said, that they didn't have all the technology and they didn't need it. The point is, you can't even begin to count. I mean you you pick up a hand of sand the next time that you're at the beach and you try to count each little grain, right? Just a handful and you can't do it. You'd get frustrated. Same thing with the dust on yeah. the earth. Everybody's been locked in with COVID-19 and you know I don't know if, if, if everybody's been cleaning the way that they should from what I hear everybody's been cleaning and what I hear is everybody's houses were really nasty before this time and so it gave people a lot of extra time to clean and I've heard people joke about how much dust they had just in their own house and when you think about Jesus said that there will be more people or or, the, or God told Abraham that through Jesus there'd be more people saved than there are dust on the earth here's the point We're not saying that we should take any of this absolute literal the point Jesus the point that is being made, is that there's going to be what, a lot of
0: people. Up whatever there.
1: the point is, it's not few. I, I don't know anybody who's going to argue <laughs> that, that the, that the number of stars in the sky and the number of sand on the seashore and dust on the earth is few. And so regardless of, cause I actually taught this one time and I had a man come up to me. He said, well, he goes, well, I don't think, I don't think God was being literal to Abraham. I said, well, I don't either. I said, but do you think that in any sense that sounds restrictive and and limited. Does that sound like it's only going to be a few people? He goes, well, no. I said, well, that's the point that that God was making Abraham. But Lee, we got this point now. We still have to deal with Matthew 7, 13 and 14 because I don't want to just pit Scripture against each other. The Bible does say, Jesus himself did say in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, there will only be few who find life. So how then are we to understand the promise? Do we have a Bible contradiction here? That's the question. Do we have a Bible contradiction? Because there's no doubt Jesus said there's only going to be few who find eternal life. That's what he said. And there's no doubt that the amount of people that are going to be saved are not few according to God and according to Peter and according to Paul and according to the promise that Jesus himself said he was there to fulfill. So was Jesus contradicting himself when he said that only few people would go to heaven? How do we explain this?
0: Well, if you come to this with the predisposition that heaven is going to be a small place, you do have a contradiction. But if we take the context of the whole, we take the context of all of the scriptures and how they relate to each other, and we look at the message that has been delivered at its core principled um, center, then you're going to see that you don't really have a contradiction per se. The contradiction is an imagined contradiction because it's a contradiction based on and predicated upon our our own preconception from this. We can see that there isn't really a contradiction here. Heaven isn't going to be a small place. We're not going to have only a few there. So what that means is, is that whenever he says few there be that find it, then that's going to have its own contextual basis that needs to be explored.
1: Yeah, and and this is there, there are really two options, and there are different people, different scholars who take different views on this, and so I want to explain both of these just for a moment, if that's okay, and 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 then we can discuss this. But the first the first explanation of of the context of Matthew seven thirteen to fourteen is that Jesus is speaking comparatively. In other words, this position says that when Jesus says only few will be saved, he doesn't actually mean few in an absolute. Sense, but few compared to the majority. And and some information that people may, may give to, to give credence to this idea is uh, this, for example, was in 2012. A poll was taken, and I'm, by the way, I'm sure the numbers are even lower than they were then, but a poll was taken that shows only 33% of the world's population claim any form of Christianity. So this first explanation is that Jesus isn't saying heaven's going to be small. What he's saying is that the majority of of people compared to the minority of people are not going to follow him. And that would therefore still, when you think of 33% of the world's population and all the people who followed Christ in the past, if if you even take all of them, which I'm not going to say every single person who just says they believe in Jesus is a true faithful follower in Christ or has a relationship with them, but even assuming that they do, three out of 10 would still be considered few. So that's one explanation. I used to take that position, and then I changed, and I'm going to explain why. So the other alternative, and this is more contextual, and I believe this does have more more credence to it, is Jesus is speaking specifically about the Jews in this context. He's speaking about how many Jews will choose to follow him, and the reason why I believe this this is the correct understanding is because most Jews rejected Jesus while he was on the earth. Remember. They're the ones who put them on the cross to begin with. And of course, my sins did too. So I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. I'm simply saying from a nationalistic perspective, the Jews, the majority of the Jews did reject Jesus while he was on earth, but they didn't just reject him while he was on earth. By the end of the first century and beginning with the second century, the majority of the church consisted of non-Jews. It was mostly Gentile believers. And we even see this from the early church fathers that uh, the early church fathers were men who were not in direct association with the apostles or Jesus, but they came later and they were some of the earliest writers we have of, of Christianity who were followers of, of Jesus and that none of them were Jews. Not a single one of them uh, were, were a Jew. None of them were Jews. And so it also fits the immediate context as well as the historical context with the destruction of Jerusalem Luke 13, 23 through 27, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 18. And let me read one more thing and then we'll kind of discuss this. But really to me, Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 through 12 proves this even further, because this is right after Jesus healed a Gentile. And this is what he said. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you that there's been no one in Israel that I have found with such faith. I tell you that many. Many will come from the east and west. This is talking about the Gentiles. Many will come who are not of Jewish descent, and they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, those being the Jews, will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here you actually have Jesus say that there will be many gentiles who will be saved so my conclusion and like i said there are a couple of explanations out there but my understanding and my conviction on this at this time is that when jesus was talking in matthew seven thirteen and 14 he was not speaking universally he was not speaking for all time for everyone he was speaking specifically to the Jews in that context, because right after he would talk about how there would be many Gentiles who would be saved, but not many Jews. That fits perfect with the context, and it also fits perfect with the promise that was made to Abraham.
0: Well, a couple of things that come to my mind with that is what you just quoted there in Matthew chapter eight and verses ten through twelve, um, whenever Jesus said, "I have not found such great faith in all of Israel," he's not talking about the geographical region in that passage. He's not talking about that area in which he had been preaching. It's like, oh, I haven't found all the, as much faith in all of Texas. You know, he, that's not what he's referring to. He's referring to the nation of Israel, right. of all of the descendants of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham. I haven't seen as much faith as this Gentile. This, you know, what they considered someone just of a little bit higher standing than a dog. I've I've ne- not seen such great faith in all of my own people. Another thing that I think we need to, I want to make it clear just because I'm a a little more aware of some of the sensitivities of others is whenever we talk about the Jews rejecting Jesus, we're speaking in an ancient context. None of this is meant to be or come across as anti-Semitic at all. So if you're listening and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe Kevin just said that. Kevin is a racist. He hates Jews. It must be because he's from Alabama that he hates Jews. No. No. No, 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 no. This is not anti-Semitic rhetoric. This is not anti-Semitic language. It is a fact of history that Jesus, who was a Jew, a Jewish carpenter, who I love, who Kevin loves, who we have devoted our lives to following. We've devoted our lives to following a Jew. He was rejected by his own countrymen. And that's all we're saying. That's a matter of history. It's not an anti-Semitic language. It's not any hate directed towards any nationality at all. So if you have that idea in your mind, flush it because it's not what we're saying at all. It's a fact of history that the Jews in Jesus's day rejected him. And there are many Jews today who follow Jesus, who are Christians but there are a lot of Orthodox Jews who observe Judaism as their faith, and what separates Judaism from Christianity is that Judaism rejects Jesus as the Messiah. So even today, it's still true that Jesus is rejected. And yeah, and that. That's,
1: I- oh, I was just going to say that that idea historically can be traced back to the time Jesus was crucified, as I mentioned earlier with the early church fathers. None of those were no those men were Jews, and if you continue up in history of course you you end up with the roman catholic church and you know i'm just paraphrasing here but even until today when you look back have there been jews who were saved absolutely have and like you said there's a lot of messianic jews today who who are jews physically but spiritually they are also followers of jesus christ and christianity and so there are some that have been saved and are and are able to be saved the gospel is still for the jews just as it is for the gentiles but what we've seen, and Jesus predicted this, by the way, Jesus didn't make this happen. Jesus just predicted that it, he knew it was going to his prophecy. He knew that most Jews would reject him. And honestly, to this day, as you pointed out, that's still the case. That it is extremely difficult. I have a friend of mine who was a Messi or who is a messianic Jew, and he talks about how difficult it is to convert jews to to believe in jesus christ and he said that it typically takes two and a half to four years of deep relationship and deep study to convert someone to believe in jesus christ because of of their history and their trust still in the in the idea of a future messiah just as those who crucified jesus during that time still believed in a future messiah because they thought he was a false prophet so Getting back to to the point, and I think it's so vital, is when we look at this in context, it makes perfect sense that this is what Jesus is saying. Number one, it doesn't contradict the sea promise of how there's going to be an innumerable amount of people who are going to be saved. Number two, it doesn't contradict what Jesus would say in Matthew 8, in in literally the next chapter, when he said there's many Gentiles who are going to be saved, but few Jews who will be saved. So all of this fits perfectly. And then once again, with the destruction of Jerusalem, how this was going to happen soon, it was not that far away and that so many people would deny Jesus and they would be destroyed in that. And so that's really my conclusion on the matter. But there are, like I said, some people who take just the comparatively view where they believe that Jesus was speaking in comparison. I think, I think that that you can make that argument. Like I said, I think that there's more context to give us more information, but No matter which way you go with it, here's the point I want to nail down, and that is there's not just going to be a few amount of people in heaven.
0: Yeah, and the contextual argument to me seems to fit better, especially when you consider what Jesus said in Matthew 21, where he says "You know, the stone which the builders rejected in verse 42 has become the chief cornerstone. He's quoting that psalm. And then in verse 43, he says, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of heaven will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him into powder. And in verse 45, it says, now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. And Mm, then if you go on... What what passage is that again? Say that again. Oh, that is uh, Matthew chapter 21. And that is, well, let me find it again. I just lost it. Matthew 21 and verses 42 through 45.
1: I've never really paralleled that. That's good. I like that.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it fits. It absolutely fits. And then if you go over into Matthew 22, you find that parable of the wedding feast. And we remember that parable. You've got the, in. he begins this parable in verse two, where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, so he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then he talks about this King who sends out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding to come to the wedding. And they didn't want to come to the wedding. So then he sends out his servants again, and then they begin to make excuses and they, made light of it. They went to their farm, went to their business. And verse six says, the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. When the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was very sparsely populated. There were very, very few there because heaven's going to be an empty place. No, it doesn't say that. It says the wedding hall was filled with guests. And to me, that's Jesus explaining what heaven will be like. Now, there are some who will say, well, the kingdom of heaven here refers to the church and it refers to the coming of the kingdom. But a lot of times, remember, Jesus refers to the kingdom in that context. He doesn't call it the kingdom of heaven. So, I mean, based on this, and man, we could just keep going on and on and on about it. But I think that you've made the point very, very well. I hope that I've helped to make that point as well. You know, it's, it's so refreshing and it's so comforting to know that the kingdom of heaven, heaven itself, I don't need to worry about how many people are going to be there. If I'm worried about heaven or if I have the predilection that heaven is a small place, that it's going to be sparsely populated, that no one's there, well, I'm going to begin to worry like we talked about at the very beginning. I'm going to begin to worry, am I going to make it? But whenever we look at God's grace that has appeared to all men and he's extended that grace through Jesus, we can rest in knowing that he fulfilled his promise to Abraham in Jesus and that heaven will be much more full than we can possibly imagine it will be.
1: Well, and to me this made me a lot more humble because it took away my superiority complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in, in in the sense that before I really would beat my chest I almost really like the the tax uh, not the tax collector but the pharisee and the way that I would come across in my prayers of hey look I'm I'm so thankful that I found the truth and and so many people out there don't have it and yet I do and all these other believers out there who they they pretty much believe about ninety five percent of the same thing I do and they have a phenomenal relationship with Christ, but you know, they they don't necessarily worship the way that I think they should and maybe they didn't have the proper understanding or an understanding that i think they should have of, of certain topics well sorry they're lost and i'm thankful though i'm one of the few and so it takes away that superiority complex and and i don't mean just once again to say that derogatory but it does help to bring us all at equal footing realizing that that yes you're special because jesus died for you but look there's going to be so many people saved. There are so many people who place their faith in Jesus, man. This isn't about look at how good I am compared to other people. This is about how those who place their faith in Jesus, and have a relationship with him, man, they're going to be there in heaven. And there will be so many people there. It's going to be more than the stars in the sky, more than the, the sand on the seashore, more than the dust on the earth. And man, that's just a beautiful thing.
0: It's absolutely a beautiful thing. And it's one that I look forward to with great anticipation. It's going to be a wonderful day when time comes to an end and we stand there before our maker and our savior. It's going to be a great day. It's going to be a wonderful thing. And I can't really think of anything that compares to that idea or that concept. Amen, brother. All right. Well, do you have anything else you want to add to it? Anything else you want to say?
1: Oh, that's good, man. I I just, I want people to know that we're not forsaking truth. Um, You know, we're, we are trying to understand it. Um, I remember that when I first started hearing alternative views that I just couldn't believe that there were actually biblical reasons for people to believe things other than the way I had been taught, because I literally thought that my way was the only way. And so I hope people can see through this just because someone like myself thought that their argument was airtight and that they had everything figured out, doesn't mean that they do. It doesn't mean that their argument is. And so we have to be willing to consider these alternatives. We have to be willing to understand just Jesus as a person and the larger context of who God is and just the love that he has for us. And uh, man, when you do that, your, your mind opens up where you can truly, accept jesus for who he is and you're going to find that jesus may not be who you thought he was he is uh, in my mind so much more than i ever could imagine that he is and even i can't even comprehend the love he has for me
0: well and it's it's extremely reassuring to know that god is bigger that jesus is bigger than the boxes that we try to put him in sometimes and to those that are listening to this, maybe you've heard all this and you think it's all a, just a bunch of hogwash. Maybe you're not buying the idea that that heaven is going to be a, a large place, that it's going to be filled to the brim with those who have placed their faith and trust in God. And my question would be to you to, to consider, not as a gotcha, not as some rhetorical, ha, 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 look at me, but but just really think about this. What does that say about the God that you serve? If heaven really is a small place, what does that say about God? Because to me, that's the biggest question that needs to be answered here. And in my mind, I I can't think of any greater question than to ask, what kind of God do we serve? We serve a God who loves us, and we serve a God who extends grace to us if we would place our faith in Him. So thank you all for listening. This is Lee and Kevin once again signing off until we see you next time.
1: Thanks for listening.